Hello and welcome to Real Living. This is Lavinia Spirito. We got something special for you today, something different. I recorded a series on the passion and the resurrection and the burial of the Lord. And I thought that might be interesting to present them in podcast form for Lent. And I think they should be interesting for you all. So enjoy. Today we're going to speak about a very hard portion of scripture. It's the trials and the crucifixion of the Lord. And um, every time I prepare for this talk, it gets harder and harder because it it really helps you kind of deepen an understanding of what our Lord went through in the Passion. Before we talk about the Passion, I think always included in a talk about the Passion should be the agony in the garden. And uh, so let me just lead in with that. Today I want to cover the agony in the garden through the death of the Lord on the cross. That's where we hope to go today, okay? Now, last time, when we talked about the, the Last Supper, we spoke of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, accomplishing the consummation of the new Passover, the new Passover in his blood. Today, we are going to see how that new Passover is sealed in the blood of the Lamb. There were a lot of parallels between the lamb offered at Passover by Moses and Jesus. And all the evangelists, including Luke, want to make a point. They want you to see the similarities between Jesus, the lamb of God, and the lamb of the Passover, and how the lamb of the Passover sealed the old covenant, which was in some ways imperfect and not as effective, of course, as the ultimate covenant, the new covenant, which is sealed in the blood of the true lamb. And if you've been paying any attention, the readings lately at Mass, you'll see there's a whole series from Revelations. Like last Sunday, we, the introduction was, and I turned around and I saw one as a lamb who had been slain, sitting on the throne. That's a funny thing to be seeing on a throne in heaven. If you think about it, we're so vaccinated with this, you know, cat, you know, Christian jargon. Oh, yeah, the Lamb of God. But what does that mean? Think about how Jesus preferred to be seen in heaven by John as a man, of course, as one as a son of man with a terrible appearance, an awesome appearance, but also as a lay- lamb standing as if slain. So with the marks of the crucifixion on him, standing in heaven by his throne. So imagine Imagine the significance of that and imagine that if God wants his son to be remembered that way in his scriptures, we should pay attention to how he got there. And that's how we're going to, what we're going to do today. If you will recall in Jesus, in, uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, we, we see Jesus and his disciples approaching the Mount of Olives. Now they had come from the upper room. They had celebrated the Passover, the Last Supper. And if you know, if you're familiar with the territory around Jerusalem, you know that uh, in order to go to the Mount of Olives, they had to exit Jerusalem. They had to go down into the Kidron Valley, and then they had to rise up again to approach the Mount of Olives, which is approximately 400 feet over uh, where Jerusalem is. So you have a good, you know, good view on top of everything else. Now, the Mount of Olives is called the Mount of Olives because, as you might imagine, especially in the past, it's covered now with olive trees, but in the past, it was known for its olive presses. And in fact, the word in Hebrew, gatshamen, gatshamen, means olive press. 
So the garden itself of Gethsemane is the garden of the olive press. And archaeological finds have found on Mount, on the Mount of Olives, caves where they kept the olive presses. And so the idea would be, or actually it's pretty, it's pretty much of a speculation, but I think it makes perfect sense, that Jesus and his friends, it says he loved the Mount of Olives. He loved the Garden of Olives. Why? Probably because there were warm, dry caves where he could go with his disciples and pray. The caves served many a purpose. If you were um, running olive presses, it kept your olives dry. It kept them at a warmer temperature. They'd be easier to express. And if you are a band of disciples and you're looking for a, a warm, dry, a warmer, drier place to pray, that would make sense as well. Of course, that's just speculation. So just imagine Jesus and the disciples doing the trek which they must have done, the journey, the itinerary which they must have taken, which was leaving Jerusalem, going down into the Kidron Valley, and coming up, approaching the Mount of Olives. Now, as they picked their way across the stones that lined the Kidron Valley, remember the Holy Land is a deserted, arid place, very rocky. Think about this. The sacrifices in the temple, you have to think about the geography here, okay? We have Jerusalem with the temple, which is a prominent place. And the temple, the wall of the temple, the Temple Mount, is right on a sort of a precipice or a cliff that leads into the Kidron Valley. When they sacrificed all the sacrifices in the temple, all the animals, imagine the blood. Imagine the blood. And the blood was like a staple of the sacrifices. The blood had to be drained away. So uh, archaeological evidence shows that there was a system of sluices and drains in the temple that they, whereby they could flush all the blood away with water or even just sweeping it towards the drains. And the, the blood would come down and most likely leak into and arrive into the Kidron Valley. So that most likely, as Jesus is picking his way across the Kidron Valley to go up into the Mount of Olives, he was picking his way over blood-stained rocks, stained with the sacrifices in the temple. And most likely, he was reciting uh, the series of psalms that goes in the great Hallel, the great praises the psalms recited in a joyful context during the Passover. And one of those psalms, as we know, is Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a psalm we should be very familiar with through this uh, Easter season and through the time leading up to Easter season. Why? Because it's the, it's the psalm that says what? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. I will not die but live. That's what Psalm 118 says. And that's this, in, the, in the series of psalms that Jesus and his disciples were most likely re reciting as a part of the Passover as they cross the Kidron Valley, as they go up into the Mount of Olives. As they arrive at the Mount of Olives, Jesus knows what's in store for him. And he prays, and it's a beautiful picture of his humanity and yet his divinity. But the thing that we see the most here is his humanity, praying to the Father, saying, God, I know we talked about this. <laughs> I know that I'm kind of an important part of the plan, but if it is at all possible that this cup would pass from me. But yet what? As you will and not as I will. And that, I think, is probably a blueprint for all of us in prayer when we face difficult things. And, and Lord, yet not as I will, but as you will, because you have all the pieces of the puzzle. You can see the front of the tapestry. 
I can only see the back of the tapestry. I can only see this jumble of threads on the back, but you can see the perfect design, which is your will. And there's a good example for all of us. And as he prays, he says he prays, he prayed earnestly. Verse 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And here you have a pretty well-known, documented uh, medical phenomena called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis, which certain individuals went under a good deal of stress and distress, um, are so affected by the emotional stress that it causes the blood, the little capillaries, to burst small blood vessels into the sweat glands around the head, causing one literally to sweat blood. So it's not, um, this is not a figure of speech, okay? This is a medical phenomena, and it goes to the, I want you to see through this lecture, we're going to be accumulating the physical insults that Jesus experiences in his body. He wasn't just crucified. First, he had to sustain this distress where literally the sins of the world were pressing in on him, causing him to sweat blood. Okay? And um, here, too, we have, I'd say, another nail in the coffin of the theory that says that Jesus didn't know who he was, that Jesus didn't know he was God, that he was just some poor soul caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's obvious that Jesus accepted the role that he had, he had been given. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he shakes his disciples. Well, you know, the disciples, especially his friends, <clears throat> Peter, James, and John have just done what? They just knocked, have knocked back at least four cups of wine, if not more. They've had a big meal, Passover celebratory meal. And on top of that, they're, they're distressed. It says because of the grief. They were sleeping for sorrow. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever had such a, it's just too much for me. I think I'm going to go take a nap. You know, I don't think they were planning it that way, but it looks like the whole confluence of events, the fact that it was evening, the fact that they'd been to this party, the fact that they were so sorrowful, the fact that Jesus keeps talking about, I'm going to die now. You know, and that doesn't really square well with what they want him to be doing. They do not want to be backing somebody who's going to be dying. They don't understand it. They still don't get it. And they won't get it even afterwards. Even when it takes, the angel has to rub their faces into the fact that, why are you looking in here? He's not here. He's someplace else. He's gone. He has risen like he said he would. And yet it takes forever for the apostles to catch on. And here too, the apostles are a bit clueless. And so one of the reactions, very human one, is they're sleeping. And Jesus shakes him and says, could you not wait one hour up with me? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour with me? And that would be something we do well to take with us when we go into adoration. The invitation of the Lord to watch with him for an hour. And as he's shaking Peter's shoulder, we can imagine, because that's the timing and the geography would allow that to happen, that he's looking across the Kidron Valley and he can see the torches of the soldiers and of the mob that's coming to get him. I would say that Jesus had plenty of opportunities to run away. Plenty of opportunities to run away, but he knew he had given his will to the Father and he had declared himself obedient. And so you see these torches coming up, winding their way up into the Mount of Olives and you have the detail of soldiers. Verse 47, 
While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. <clears throat> he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, why do you think Judas had to go up to Jesus? Because there were no press kits. There was no TV. There was no internet. Nobody knew what Jesus looked like unless he'd actually seen Jesus preach. Jesus always surrounded himself with all these other guys. How do we know we're going to get the right guy? And that is why Judas serves a very practical purpose. He can't really tell the guys, well, go arrest him. He's the one wearing, you know, this. They want to make sure that they get the right guy. And that's why Judas has to go in person. Because if you were about to betray one of your best friends, would you really want to do it in person? Wouldn't you rather do it some other way so that people didn't know that's what you did? And yet Judas is already caught up in events that he wasn't planning because you can tell afterwards by his remorse that he didn't really want things to go that way. And yet he picks to a, a, a solution to the problem which is unacceptable because he puts himself beyond God's mercy by killing himself. Remember the, the, the distinction between Peter's betrayal and Judas's betrayal. They both had choices. Judas could have repented, but he didn't. Judas could have turned back to the Father, but he didn't. Peter, who did something almost equally as heinous, turned back and knew that he would find forgiveness. And so that's kind of the lesson for us too. There is nothing that we can do, nothing that we can do that God will not forgive. There is nothing, no way that we can say to God, I'm not worthy. You don't know my problem. My problem is the worst problem since the foundation of the world and you can't handle it. God can handle it. We just need to give it into his hands. <clears throat> and so you have the, the disciples still in that catching on here. They're surrounded by temple guards, by a detachment of temple guards with Romans as well coming in. Now, actually, the Romans aren't here. It's the, it's the temple guards still at this point who are dispatched to arrest him. And in the Gospel of John, there's a great scene where the, the head of the temple guards, the captain says to him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And what does he say? How does he respond? I am. I am. And then what happens? Anybody remember? They fall down. Here these tough guys, these temple soldiers, come to arrest Jesus. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? I am. Crash. That must have been very dignified for them. They probably didn't feel too good about that. But why? What was I am? Who named himself I am? God. Who did he name himself I am to? Moses, where at the burning bush, right? Moses asks God for ID, basically. Who can I say sent me? Will you please tell me who you are? And he says, I am. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew that he had been sent into the world for a purpose. But let's not have any of this condescending stuff about how he was a good moral teacher and nothing else. Nobody says stuff like Jesus said, arrogating to himself the prerogatives of divinity and is still a good teacher if they, in fact, are not divinity. Do you understand what I'm saying? God closed all the other doors. He's either who he says he is or he's a lunatic or he's the devil of hell. But he's certainly not a good guy walking around saying peace and love, man, like some people would want to have you believe. 
And so he says to the temple guards, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But then he pronounces the words, but this is your hour, skotos. In the Greek, it's the hour of darkness and the power of darkness and the exousia, the authority that's used in the text in Greek denotes the authority uh, given to the evil one for this particular time. Okay, so you have almost um, military terms to describe the, the authority that's given to Satan at this point. Satan is given authority according to a certain military scheme almost, but in the end he is fulfilling God's plan. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And the high priest for that year, as we know, was Caiaphas, but Caiaphas is only a puppet moved in the background by his father-in-law, Annas. And in fact, it's common to speak of the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas together, because Annas seems to be the evil genius behind this whole thing. Uh, if you read other histori- history of the period, especially coming from Josephus, you see that Annas uh, got his son-in-law uh, named a high priest, then he got his other son, then he got his cousin, then he, you know, basically it was the, the high priesthood of Annas and all his friends and relatives. For a while, it's kind of a nepotistic uh, scheme. So you have at this point a whole series of trials that occur. You know, <laughs> there are about five or six trials or hearings that Jesus is given. And uh, let me just address the moment of timing, just for the the issue of timing, just for a little bit. Um, some gospels point to Jesus being arrested at night, having the trials during the night, and being crucified the next day. Some Gospels point to Jesus there's being a little more time going by between the old the the um the Last Supper and the crucifixion. It's okay because this is not a contradiction, this is not a discrepancy. I think we can probably assume that Jesus, because he celebrated the Last Supper in the Essene quarter of Jerusalem, probably also adhered to the Essene calendar. Back then, first century, you have conservatives and liberals almost, okay? The liberals are the Sadducees. The Romans come in with this nifty new solar calendar. We're going to use that one. It's much more efficient. The Essenes and the old-fashioned people cling to the old, actually. The Romans come in with a lunar calendar. The Essenes cling to their old solar calendar. So it is very feasible that there were different groups celebrating Passover at different times according to different calendars depending on what they adhere to, okay? So we can assume, um, for purposes of this discussion, or not, it doesn't really change the facts, that Jesus may have uh, celebrated the Passover a day or so early according to the Essene calendar. It doesn't change anything if he did it according to the, to, the, um, to the lunar calendar as well, okay? It just gives you some more time to fit all these events in, all right? And so we have six trials. We have uh, I'm calling the confrontation at Annas's house where he is first brought a trial. It's a hearing. It's a, it's a confrontation of Jesus uh, with his accusers. You have him taken from Annas's house to Caiaphas's house where he is probably most likely kept overnight. And the, and the procedure was to hang the prisoners by their arms in pits under the floors until they were wanted for questioning until they, you know, they decided what they were going to do for them. So we can imagine the kind of night that Jesus uh, experienced uh, hung in one of 
the high priest's dungeons, pits. And that way we know that was uh, pretty uh, common to do with, with, uh, <clears throat> with prisoners. Now, think about this. The sequence of events is the Seder that we talked about, the Passover Seder would be at dusk. The Garden of Gethsemane would be around 9 p.m. The arrest would be around 11 p.m. And then you go all night, Caiaphas's courtyard, Annas's house. And then finally at dawn, you have the kangaroo trial at the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, as we know, was a council of 70 elders who ruled the nation. And in many instances, it was, um, it was comprised by a cross-section of the people. There were the Sadducees, they were the leaders of the people, they were the temple scribes, the teachers of the law. So you have, of course, a lot of rich and powerful people being on the Sanhedrin, like, for example, Joseph of Arimathea, who was at that point a secret disciple. And Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to Jesus by night and says, what's this born-again stuff? Am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? He's taking it very literally. And Jesus explains to him what it means to be born again of the water and the spirit. And Nicodemus remains a disciple since that time. So think about all these people being convened at dusk. First of all, that was illegal. You didn't convene the Sanhedrin at a moment's notice. They were, you had to have a certain quorum. <clears throat> you had to have a certain time, certain period of notice. The, the way the Sanhedrin uh, was convoked was illegal at that point. But at that point, you can tell they, they don't care. They just want to get Jesus condemned, and they want to get him condemned quickly because they know that the charges they have against him probably won't stick for too long. So they want to make sure that he is done away with in a very quick way. Matthew 26 says the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So they're looking, and they're looking, and they're looking. Finally, they find their charge, but Jesus, it's almost like Jesus hands it to them. Now, this is Jesus in front of the assembly. He has gone through the, 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 the phenomena of hematidrosis, which would leave him weakened in a state of shock with all his peripheral nerves sen sensitized so that he would feel even more anything that would happen to his skin. And so you have him having been beaten by the temple guard having been hung by his arms in this pit overnight and having sustained the shock of hematidrosis. And there he is before him, before the assembly of the elders. And they go to him and they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And, but then he really does give an answer. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And this is where you have other gospels. The, the high priest tears his robe for effect. You know, he's so horrified. Actually, he's probably overjoyed. Because finally, Jesus has given him something that he can say, this is blasphemy. Blasphemy not only against the the temple, not only because, you know, the thing about I will uh, tear down this temple and I will raise it in three days, but it is blasphemy because here's this guy and he's saying he's God. Of course, they have to come up with some other charges to tell Pontius Pilate because Pontius Pilate is not going to care that Jesus said, I am the son of God. <clears throat> 
But when you mix in and when you throw in the king of the Jews charge, the fact that he told, you know, of course, wrongly, he told people to withhold the temple tax when in fact, what did he tell him to do? He said, pay it. Get Render under Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God. And so <clears throat> you can tell that still even at that point, they're not satisfied. They wish they had more ammunition. So they go and they go up to, uh, to Pilate. They have their answer. They march him in. And you have a very interesting scene because Pilate is in Jerusalem only because it's Passover. And Passover was a very volatile time. So if you're the procurator of Judea, it would behoove you to be in the powder keg city at the time of the most highest volatility. The population of Jerusalem would have expanded two or three times its normal number. You would have all these people in from out of town. And you would have, of course, Passover was the, fa the favorite time for insurrection because you have all these people in Jerusalem. And so the Romans were used to that and they were very concerned about any possibility of rebellion or insurrection. So Pilate usually probably lives in Caesarea. He's got a villa in Caesarea. He's got probably a townhouse in Jerusalem. You can tell he does not want to spend a whole lot of time in Jerusalem, but he's there because he has to. And so here you go. He's got these, these guys who are always after him because his relationship with the Sadducees may have been a decent one because it was kind of a symbiotic relationship. But on the other hand, you also have, you can just have this feeling of him being harried by the powers that be. And so you have the high priests, you have basically a lot of the Sanhedrin, all these guys in long flowing robes with Jesus, with the temple guards, with the howling mob behind them, knocking at Pontius Pilate's door. And what do they say to him? They say, Pontius Pilate, you are a Gentile and you are unclean, so we can't come into your house because if we do, we're going to get contaminated. You have to come outside and help us kill this guy who you don't want to kill in the first place, basically. I mean, think about it that way. They want him to come outside out of his own house to listen to them, to do one of the, the things he despises the most, which is adjudicate what he thinks is just a local quarrel. He does. You can tell he doesn't want to be drawn into this. Now, is it because he's a good uh, sort of do-gooder, touchy-feely guy? No. Pontius Pilate goes down in history as a very cruel, exacting man who really wouldn't hesitate to kill people to put down insurrections or rebellion. So it's not like he's doing it out of pity or compassion. He's probably doing it because he doesn't want to give his, uh, his adversaries, the Jews, any more points than he already has. But it's also his duty to keep the peace. And so that's why he goes out and he listens to them. <clears throat> now, he comes out and he examines Jesus and elsewhere. It gives a pretty good picture of it here. But in the Gospel of John, it even elucidates it further. And they began to accuse him before Pilate, saying, We found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. See how they've cobbled everything together? And not one of them is true? But they've put in enough buzzwords so that Pilate will listen to them. Tribute to Caesar? What, what's this about? No tribute to Caesar. What's this about kings? They want to make sure that their hook, the first thing they say to him, is something that he's going to pay attention to. And Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, him, you have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, 
I find no crime in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. What are they saying? He's inconvenient. We don't want him. He's going he's gonna to rock the boat. Let's get rid of him. You want to get rid of him, Pilate. You just don't know it yet. You know, you're going to want to get rid of him if you don't get rid of him now. So what does Pilate do? He passes the buck, doesn't he? Because you can tell he's not comfortable with all this. So what does he do? He sends Jesus to <clears throat> Herod. Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, also in town for the Passover, probably wouldn't get caught dead in Jerusalem any other time of the year. And you have him being sent to Herod. Again, you know, I always bring this this thing up, but it just made an impression on me. When I saw the movie Jesus Christ Superstar a thousand years ago, whenever that was in the 70s, when they sent Jesus to Herod, and Herod says to Jesus, why don't you walk across my swimming pool? Remember that? Do a trick, please. Here, raise this person from the dead. Here, let me kill him so you can raise him from the dead. I mean, you can tell he's just, he wants Jesus to perform a trick. He's not interested in Jesus, who he is. He's not interested in anything that Jesus might have to say. He just wants to see something different. He's jaded. And so Herod examines him. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Again, remember that the lines from the movie, Jesus Christ, but Jesus, I've been waiting to see you face to face. Because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus is there. Is he going to lend himself to this circus? No, of course not. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Imagine what a scene that was. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then clothing him in gorgeous apparel, they say elsewhere that they put a purple robe on him. And purple was a sign of royalty, if you will recall. He sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For this, before this, they had been enmity with each other. Basically, Pilate is doing Herod a favor. By, it serves Pilate's purposes, but Pilate is kind of acknowledging uh, Herod's jurisdiction, sort of, over Galilee. And so Herod's saying, oh, well, thank you. You sent me this guy. Um, I acknowledge it. And now, you know, it, it basically it smooths the way for them to be friends, whereas before they had not been friends. So it's almost like a unholy alliance between the two. And so therefore the ball gets back into Pilate's court. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, <clears throat> you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. He's hoping that if he puts uh, Jesus through a Ro Roman scourging in a, in a severe fashion, that the Jews are going to be content with this punishment. On the other side of our break, we'll see just how gruesome that Roman scourging really was. Let's take a break. As we come back to our lesson, We see that Pilate thinks to appease the Jews, who we know are unappeasable at this point, by scourging Jesus, <clears throat> by putting him through a Roman scourging. Now, we know 
that Roman scourging was one of the most traumatic things you could put your body through short of a Roman crucifixion. The uh, implement used for the scourging was called a flagellum or a flagrum, which would be uh, basically a whip with long leather strings uh, or straps with pieces of bone or um, pieces of stones embedded in the straps. Eusebius, so who's a historian in the in the fifth, fourth and fifth century, says that um, people who had been scourged in a Roman scourging often had whole strips of skin ripped off, had veins exposed, and sometimes the very bowels of the victim would be exposed as well. It was an incredibly gruesome and incredibly painful method of torture. Two, sol- two soldiers would stand behind the condemned man and whip, take turns whipping, putting all their body weight into the lashes. We know, and I'm going to use evidence from the Shroud of Turin, whether in your book or not, that's convincing evidence. You know, you can decide. I'd say the jury is still out as, as to, uh, you know, how valid that proof is. But the point is this the man, buried in the Shroud of Turin, was scourged. He was crowned with thorns, and he was crucified. So let's use some evidence from there. In the case of the Shroud of Turin, the man who was scourged, who was uh, buried in that shroud, was whipped by two men of different heights. And you can see that from the evidence of the whip patterns on the back of the victim. Now, Usually, you didn't scourge somebody before you crucify them. The scourging itself was usually enough of a punishment, and sometimes, and oftentimes, people died from the scourging. But you can see Pilate feels that he's caught between a rock and a hard place and wants to provide a severe example without killing the guy. And and so you have him, and remember, this is a Roman scourging. It's not a Hebrew scourging. If he'd been scourged by the temple guards, for example, they would have had to stop at 39 lashes because that was, again, under the law, under the Torah, you could only whip somebody 40 times. And so the Jews, to be extra careful, would whip people 39 times, make sure they didn't go over. Why? Because the, the idea was that you could, you know, if you went any further, you would most likely kill the victim. Well, Jesus had no such restriction because he was scourged by Romans who had no such restrictions imposed upon them. <clears throat> and so you have the, often intestines were exposed, spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels underlying the muscles was often caused. And <clears throat> we know that after being untied from this scourging, as he was no doubt awaiting the next step in the process, basically probably to be taken back before Pilate and the crowd, <clears throat> some soldier must have thought it a good idea to pick up the thorns. Uh, It was a thorny plant that um, was very common in Palestine at the time and still is that was picked up and was kept almost as twine to wrap firewood together, except it had very, very long thorns. And so it was something that was most likely would have been at hand in the courtyard of the Antonia Fortress. And you have 
um, soldiers constructing probably what looked more like a basket and not like a crown, like an inverted basket, a, a cap of thorns <clears throat> constructed. And the idea is that they uh, rammed this cap of thorns on Jesus's head with a stick, with a pretty thick stick, actually. Um, the evidence of the shroud shows that the, the, the crown of thorns was rammed into place by blows of a stick approximately one and three quarters inch thick. And so you have Jesus <clears throat> having sustained the phenomenon of hematidrosis, being in a state of shock, having lost a lot of blood, having gone through a Roman scourging, having before that been beaten by first the temple guards and then the Roman soldiers, and then having been crucified by this um, pretty ingenious um, implement of this crown of thorns. And so he is led back to Pilate in this condition. At some point or other, either before this or after this, John has Jesus and Pilate having a very interesting discussion because at a certain point, Jesus says, I have come to bring the truth, and Pilate says what? And what is truth? What is truth? Is mine the same as yours? Pilate could have fit in today very well, right? You know, that whole, that's, what is that? That's relativism. When the Holy Father speaks to us of the dictatorship of relativism, that's what he's speaking of. The fact that there can't be an absolute truth, that my truth is not the same as yours, and as long as I'm not killing you or hurting you, I can have whatever truth I want. But, brothers and sisters, as we look at the evidence here, we know that Jesus is the truth. God is truth. The truth is a person. It's not just a thing. And we are confronted with the truth, and the truth is absolute. So, we, even there, we have, we have the world staring back at Jesus, saying, what is truth? And it's, and it's put in Pilate's mouth for a reason, because Pilate does kind of embody, <clears throat> especially if you look at his life after the crucifixion. He doesn't end up very well. He's recalled back to Rome in disgrace because he uses too much force to put down riots in Caesarea. You know, not much good is said of Pilate after this. And, and you can see that he's following his own path. He's following his own truth. But is it the truth? Probably not. And so you have him chastised, hoping to be chastised and release it, but they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, again, you have this scene of two choices present available to the nation of Israel at this very important moment in the first century A.D. You have the way represented by Jesus of Nazareth, and you have the way represented by Bar Abbas, son of the father, noted insurrectionist, murderer, most likely, who was basically had Jesus' slot. He was supposed to be crucified between those two thieves, not Jesus. That was his slot. He probably was arrested several days before, during various um, uh, volatile moments before the Passover. And so you have the choice of Barabbas, zealotry, insurrection, war. And you have the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. You have peace. You have truth. And at that point, they make their choice because what do they do? Who do they choose? They choose Barabbas. 
They choose the way of Barabbas. They choose the way of the zealot. And within a generation, what happens? Because of their zealot, their constant insurrection, General Titus marches into Jerusalem in 69-70 AD and obliterates the Jewish way of life. The temple and Jerusalem and everybody in it. Over a million people die in less than 40 years because of that choice made by the Jews. Because they chose the way of zealotry. Because they chose the way of rebellion, of insurrection. And because God sent his Messiah to them and they rejected him. And so you have them crying out for Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's probably not the same crowd that yelled Hoshana a week before. It probably, the, the crowd that yelled Hoshana was probably a more innocent crowd made up of tourists in town for the Passover. This crowd kind of smacks of, of um, ringleaders coming in being paid to whip the crowd up. And so you have Jesus being condemned because at the end, what can he do? A third time, Pilate says to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no crime deserving death. And yet, finally, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, whom they asked for, but he delivered Jesus to their will. That's how Luke puts it. Verse 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. Let me just give you a picture of what we have here. We have Jesus being turned over from the Jewish authorities to the Roman authorities because the Jews had no power to carry on the penalty of death, and they had to kind of give it to the Romans to execute the sentence. And the, the sentence at that time, in that neck of the woods for insurrection, if you were a non-Roman, was crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in the 6th century as one of the very inventive way of killing people, also as a deterrent. It was refined by Alexander the Great, if you might call it that way. And by the time the Romans inherited it as a method of execution, they had really tweaked it to the point where it was really and truly one of the most gruesome ways to die. It took the victims two, three, four days to die on the cross. And they died a slow death of suffocation. It was such a symbol of horror, the cross, that it took the Christian community four or five centuries before they would actually use the symbol of the cross. It was abolished finally, I think, in the fourth century. And it took the horror, the memory of the horror of the cross, took so much time to kind of leave the, the collective mind so that it could be used as a symbol. Because originally, the symbol of Jesus in the catacombs was what? Was the fish? Was the Cairo? Was the good shepherd? Was... Uh, you know, it was many different symbols, but not the cross. The cross was too horrifying a memory for many people who, who actually lived during a time when it was still used as an execution method. And so you have Jesus being turned over to the Roman detail. So you would have a Roman detail of soldiers, about four or five, six soldiers, uh, taking this little procession of people strapped to their, their, um, the, the long arm of the cross called the patibulum, this element right here, which weighed about 100 pounds. So there's no way that he could have carried his old cross. That he would have cried, carried the horizontal way, but probably not the vertical element. 
the vertical element most likely was already at the place of execution, either already in the ground, and you would have the crucified person hoisted it on to the element, or lying on the ground and then to be put into pre-existing holes that had been cut in the ground. And so you have the um, condemned, Jesus and the two uh, thieves, strap probably most likely tied to these very heavy elements, uh, um, the horizontal element of the cross, the patibulum, and uh, put in a little procession to go from the inside of Jerusalem to the outside where you would have had the place of execution, the place of the skull, Golgotha. It's about 650 yards. It's called the Via Dolorosa if you've ever been in Jerusalem. And if you uh, go to Jerusalem soon, you can see, you can do the Via Dolorosa if you've already done it. They, they have the stations of the cross and you can do it. It's a very, it's a very moving experience. And so you have Jesus who has sustained all these bodily insults. He's probably half dead from the Roman scourging, tied to this heavy element. The shroud offers up evidence that the person who had been buried in the shroud suffered two to three to four unprotected falls with a heavy, heavy element tied on his back. Unprotected. That's the evidence from the abrasions uh, on the front of the body that was buried in the shroud. And so you have the Roman detail, you have Jesus and the two thieves carrying their patibulum, and then you have, of course, the titulum, which was the board, was the uh, um, the inscription that was placed above the cross to kind of show people as they went around their business. Because remember, people were crucified at crossroads or places where people were most likely to go or places where you kind of came in and out of town. And so you have this titulum with words, uh, with the same sentence repeated in, in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek that repeated the same thing. Of course, the Jews take great exception to the titulus because it doesn't put things quite the way that they would have put it. But what it says is, Jesus Nazareni, yek rex judeorum, which is where we get the, the initials inri, I-N-R-I, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's repeated in Hebrew and in Greek over Jesus's. And you would have had the soldier carrying the titulus in this little procession of these guys, these condemned guys going to the crucifixion place. And so you have them arriving at the crucifixion place, but before they arrive at the crucifixion place, they have to gang press somebody into service. This poor guy, uh, minding his own business, he's just kind of maybe healthy looking, you know, maybe he's bigger. And uh, Simon of Cyrene, which implies that he's from someplace in Libya, he's a North African, that he um, is pressed into service and helping Jesus carry this element of his cross. And there his name remains in the gospel forever and ever. And then you have the, the women of Jerusalem coming to meet Jesus, crying over, over his fate. You know, just think about all the various um, pictures that you want to put in your mind as we recite the fourth sorrowful mystery, the carrying of the cross. Think about all, all the things that happened. Think about all the people. You know, what was the crowd doing? What were the Roman soldiers doing? What were Jesus and the two thieves doing? <clears throat> and so you have him meeting Simon of Cyrene. You have him meeting the daughters of Jerusalem. And they came to the place which is called the skull, verse 33. And there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right side of the other. Now, when you arrived at the place of crucifixion, you had Roman soldiers who were devoted to doing 
just that, crucifying people efficiently. And so the idea would be that you couldn't just nail somebody's hand to a piece of wood. You had to take measurements. You had to stretch the man's um, shoulders and the arms on the element of the patibulum. And then you had to make a, like a little, stretch your hands out, make a little sign or a little incision in the wood, and then go with an auger and drill a hole. So it was pre-drilled holes because there would be no way to get the spikes through the hand, through the wood without doing that. So there's a certain amount of engineering going into this. And so you have Jesus being crucified with six-inch spikes through his hands, and you have him <clears throat> also being crucified with an even longer spike through his feet. He is stripped of all his garments, and the Romans preferred victims to be nailed to the cross. They could also be tied. In the case of Jesus, he probably was tied and also nailed. We don't know about the thieves. And <clears throat> the idea was to drive a six-inch wrought iron spike through the radial and the ulna, deep into the wood, because it had to hold most of the weight. So therefore, the crucifixion would have occurred probably through the wrist and not through the hand, through this part of the wrist. <clears throat> it would have impinged, of course, most severely on the, on the median nerve. Imagine all the nerves and the pain at that point. The wrought iron spike had a heavy square head to prevent the nail from stripping out of the wrist. They, they thought of everything. The soldiers would have kept his feet together, either together and to one side or with knees bent together with the feet one on top of the other. It took such force to 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 uh, drive a nail through the feet and the wood that it was often very hard when you took the victims down off the cross to remove that element. As a matter of fact, um, archaeological diggings for the subway in Jerusalem in the 60s yielded the cadaver of a man who had been crucified in the first century. And you can see where they pry took him off the cross, they pried uh, the nails out of his hands, but they gave up on the one through his feet. They couldn't get it through. And so he was buried with the nail going through his both his ankles and a piece of wood because they couldn't get it out. So that was the amount of force that was required to keep these people on this piece of wood long enough for them to die. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' crucifixion was recorded by Roman and Greek non-Christian historians. Tacitus refers to it, Pliny the Younger refers to it, Suetonius, <clears throat> Thallus, and even Josephus himself. It is a historical event <clears throat> that is clearly recorded. We think most likely he was executed on the 14th of Nisan, which would be our April 7th on that day. <clears throat> we do know that the wording, the English word excruciating comes from the experience of being crucified. Excrucial is the root of the word to express something that is intolerable in terms of pain. And so you have Jesus crucified on the cross, and you have the cross either being a good, a good ways off the ground, the person crucified either a good ways off the ground, or he even could have been crucified close to the ground. It just depends on how tall the patibulum would have been. And so you would have this inscription on top, and there you have it. You have the scene of them being crucified. And so at that point, it becomes a death watch. And you can tell the Romans were used to this, and they were used to people taking days to die because they pull out their dice, and they're, they're ready. They have a picnic. They're, they're ready to be there for a while, 
right? Because we see them gambling for Jesus's outer garments. And the reason they liked Jesus's outer garments was what? Does anybody remember? It was all one piece. It wasn't made. It was woven all as one gown. And that was pretty rare. And it was also one of the ways in which the priestly garments in the Old Testament were to be woven as well. So again, you have these little details that are, uh, that are uh, woven into the fabric of the story. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let us save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him vinegar and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So think about all these elements. Think about the method of death. By stretching out the arms and hanging them on the wood, the tortures were creating a sophisticated form of slow death, with the victim alternately trying to relieve the agonizing pain in his wrists and arms with that of his ankles and legs. There is actually evidence of a, a similar form of torture called Aufbinden, which was used by the Nazis in Dachau, where they uh, took uh, condemned people and hung them by their wrists spread apart, and they slowly suffocated to death over a few hours. So, I mean, you know, there is precedent. That's kind of how the death would occur. Now, think about Jesus' suffering, compound by the severe beating, by the blood sweat, by the scourging, by the crown of thorns, preventing him to completely straighten up his head against the cross so that he can actually take a breath. Most victims died slowly of asphyxia, essentially drowning in their own fluids, not being able to exhale as the pectoral muscles were paralyzed and the intercostal muscles neutralized by the arms being stretched out. They would also have been subjected to bouts of paralyzing muscle cramps. And every breath was achieved only by bearing down on the feet nailed to the wood. Now imagine, under this scenario, what it would have cost Jesus or anybody, really, to speak. Every breath is precious just to breathe. Imagine taking a breath in to say the things that he said, and yet he did. We have the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, don't we? And we can call them from the different renditions in the different Gospels. The first thing he says is what? Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. Is would that would those have been the first words out of your mouth? Out of my mouth? And then he he takes the time to speak to the criminal save on one side of him. One of them starts picking on him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, also known as remember what they call him? Dismas, Saint Dismas. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingly power. And Jesus says to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then he also takes the time to speak to John and his mother, Basically, John, Mary Magdalene, and the Blessed Virgin are the only ones left out of all of Jesus' friends who are there by the cross. Everybody else is where? They're either at a distance. It says elsewhere, it says they were looking at a distance. They didn't want to be identified. Or they were just plain hiding. And that I would subject to you, I would, I would, I would propose to you, is the way 
a lot of us look at the crucifixion. Do we look at the crucifixion from standing underneath the cross? Or do we look at the crucifixion from a distance? Or we hide from the reality of the crucifixion? What does the cross of Jesus mean for us? Think of Jesus speaking to John and the Blessed Virgin. Now, I would submit to you, if Jesus did have brothers and sisters, as some allege, wouldn't it make more sense for Mary to go live with them? For him to uh, give his mother into the charge of his brothers and sisters? But in fact, if he had no brothers and sisters, the most logical thing would have been, would be to make sure that she's taken care of by his beloved disciple. And that's what he says. Of course, the, the words of Jesus assume two layers of meaning. One is, take care of my mom. And the other one is, you are the church, and I entrust you in the, in the hands, to the hands of the church. You know, you are the mother of the church, I entrust you into the hand. Like John represents humanity, and Mary represents the church. You know, there's, there's different ways of looking at it. And then he says, Psalm 22, he, f- he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we know now that he's quoting a messianic psalm that he's evoking with the first words of his quotation, not that he, God has abandoned him, but that God seems to have abandoned him, but he will eventually triumph. The whole swing of the psalm, it's a royal messianic psalm, Psalm 22. Those sitting, standing underneath there who knew their scriptures, when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, would have said, he's quoting Psalm 22. And then they would have remembered Psalm 22. And then he says, I thirst. And then he says, what? Tel, telestai in the Greek. It is finished. Or the more faithful translation is, it is paid in full. If you had been a bookkeeper in first century Jerusalem and you had one of those little rubber stamps, you would have stamped tel, telestai on accounts paid. What's, what's, what's accounted for? What is paid for? the debt of sin. He knows what he's doing. And then finally, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And most of the things he says from the cross are scripture quotes. Because Father, I commit my ha- my spirit into your hands is a direct quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. Each word was extremely costly. Each sigh, each moan, each, each breath But you see Jesus collecting himself and actually deciding when to give up his spirit. Finally, verse 46, Then Jesus, crying out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. There's another reason for the centurion to be concerned. What starts happening the minute Jesus dies? There's an earthquake. Be hard to overlook. There is a full eclipse of the sun. A high wind kicks up. And who starts walking around? The dead. That'd be, that'd be kind of hard to overlook, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it also be sort of like big red arrows pointing to this moment? So if you were blind and you had just observed this event, what, would, what, what conclusions would you draw? 
that here was somebody, somebody different, that something different is happening here. And so you have, at this point, <clears throat> the suffering of Jesus on the cross is accomplished. A few reasons for death. Well, let's think about this. I want you to have this in your mind. Exhaustion, beating, hematidrosis, shock, scourging, loss of blood. Think possible causes of death. You know, um, people with medical background have gone through this. They say it's probably hypovolemic shock, which would mean blood loss, exhaustion, asphyxia, acute heart failure, or maybe a blend of all things. The blood loss the heart, the blood loss caused the heart to race and pump more. Blood pressure drops. Kidneys shut down. Extreme thirst. And it's all there on the cross. And so you have at that point <clears throat> all these natural phenomena occurring. And the Romans deciding to sh close up shop rather quickly. And the, um, the leaders of the temple going up and saying, it's time for you to take these bodies down, because if not, it will affect the day of preparation. We can't have bodies on the cross during the day of preparation for the Passover. So all of a sudden, the temple picks up. And so you have the legs of the two unfortunate ones who are still alive are broken. Why? To hasten death, because when you can no longer bear up on your legs, you die. You drown, actually, is more, is more um, exact. And so at that point, you have a number of things happen. John says that at the very moment of Jesus' death, the Passover lamb, 3 p.m., the Passover lamb is slain in the temple. And the call of the shofar sounds on the, on the execution site. You have all present, repent, all present, go home, beating their breasts, and all the multitudes who assembled to see the site, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. That was always in antiquity a sign of, of, of guilt, a sign of repentance. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And you have <clears throat> another very important event taking place in the temple as Jesus dies. And what happens? The curtain, the temple veil, dividing God from the rest of humanity is torn top to bottom. The parochet, it was called in Hebrew, and it was 60 feet high. And it was the thickness of a man's fist. It was not a veil. It was more like a curtain or a, a rug. I mean, it was very thick. And the idea that it was torn from top to bottom, what do you think God is trying to convey there? What's he trying to convey? It's torn from top to bottom. It's God reaching down saying, we don't need this anymore. We don't need this anymore. You now have perfect access to the throne room through the Son of God, through the blood of the Lamb. So <clears throat> there's no longer any need for the veil. The way is prepared for the Holy Spirit to come down on the disciples at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is about to change residences. The Holy Spirit no longer resides behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, only to be seen or accessed or being or being able to be looked at once a year by the high priest at Yom Kippur. The Holy Spirit in 50 days is moving across the street to the upper room to live in the heart of all the disciples. The Holy Spirit has moved from the Holy of Holies to live in the hearts of each one of us through baptism. Think about that also. When you hear about the curtain veil being torn, think about the Holy Spirit who was only available for certain individuals, important individuals in the Old Testament, being available to all of us now 
in the new dispensation. Let me just close with this reading from Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 19. We now have confidence to enter the most highly place, the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, and that would be through his body. Let me repeat this. We have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body.